Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Tonight we're going to be talking about the atonement of Christ. This is our second session in the second part of this study. We've gone through the person of Christ, and now, as of last week, we've started this section on the work of Christ. And last week, we began looking at the life of Christ. So we walked through um, the theology behind his birth, the virgin conception, his birth, his early life, his miracles, uh, the temptation in the wilderness, his baptism. And now we've come to this point where we want to talk about the the atonement of Jesus. Tonight, I don't want to talk about necessarily the narrative of the crucifixion of Christ, though we will talk about that, and we'll talk about those Bible passages, but I do want to talk about the theology behind it, and I want to answer this question tonight. What did Jesus do on the cross? That's what our our theme is going to be tonight. What did Jesus accomplish? What actually happened on the cross? Because this Um, more than any of the other works that we're going to talk about. The the crucifixion and the resurrection are at the center of the gospel, right? That is the gospel. Paul says this is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. So the atonement and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the center of the Christian faith. Without the crucifixion, without the resurrection, without the concept of the atonement of Jesus Christ, there is no Christian faith. Uh, We have nothing to believe in. All four Gospels spend almost half of their energy on the last week of Christ, and the majority of that is on those last days of Christ, um, between the Last Supper, his agony in the garden, the trials, and the crucifixion, and the resurrection. And of course, you understand why so much time is spent on that part of the narrative, because again, that's the center of the whole story. Uh, All the other stuff is leading us to that point. The virgin birth, the miracles, the temptation, the baptism, all of it is leading us to the atonement, what Jesus did for us on the cross and through his resurrection. And here's sort of the reality behind even that. It's not just the center of the Bible story. It's not just the center of the story in the Gospels. The atonement of Jesus and the resurrection is the center of the entire story of the universe. I mean, the reason God created the universe, the reason there is creation is because he wanted to display his love to sinners through the atonement of Jesus Christ. So this is not just the center of the Bible, the center of the Gospels, the center of our faith. It is the center of the entire cosmos. This is the story behind it all. So we have to answer this question. We have to answer it rightly. What did Jesus do on the cross? And maybe you read that question, you think, well, that's obvious. You know, Jesus died for sinners. And a lot of people would nod their heads and agree to that. But in the last um, 100, 200 years, there's been a lot of debate as to what Jesus did on the cross. And a lot of this comes from, I don't want to bore you with more history, because I told you I wouldn't do that anymore, that we did the historical considerations, but now we're on to something else. But briefly, 
Uh, all of that comes from what we call theological liberalism. Okay, we're familiar with political liberalism. You know, you have the left and the right politically. You have fiscal conservatives and fiscal liberals. You have social conservatives, social liberals. Well, theology has the same spectrum, and you can be a conservative Christian theologian, or you can be a liberal or progressive Christian, quote, uh, theologian. And a lot of these ideas of the atonement that separated from historical Christianity come from theological liberalism. And here's the big problem that liberalism has with the traditional view of the atonement that we're going to talk about. Liberal theology, liberal Christian, progressive Christian theology, uh, does not like the concepts of sin, certainly does not like the concepts of God's wrath, hell, condemnation, judgment. Uh, liberal Christianity, progressive so-called Christianity, is, is moving, quote, beyond that and, and seeing some other story, and they tend to focus more on the social aspect of Jesus' teachings. So helping the poor, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, uh, all good things, but what theological liberalism does and what's called the social gospel is that they have divorced the traditional understanding of the atonement and sin and sacrifice and blood and judgment. They've divorced that from those social teachings, and they said, let's stick with just the nice stuff and avoid all the hell, wrath, uh, judgment, blood, sacrifice stuff. And one theologian in that camp said that if you believe that the atonement is about God the Father placing his wrath on his son and killing him for our sins, he said, if you believe that, then that is what this person called cosmic child abuse. And they said this is to be avoided because that is not the God of love, that is not the God of mercy that would punish his, quote, child for sinners. And so from this has come at least three other major views, different views on the atonement. Now you're going to hear this and you're going to think, well, isn't that right? And uh, Matt Hazel was back there, but his, his, one of his uh, taglines is, it's true, it's just not true enough. And with every view we're going to see, that, that's what this is. Let's talk first about one of the different views of the atonement called Christus Victor. Anybody heard of this before? That terminology? Jennifer, yeah, that's why I pray for you. All right, so you don't, yeah. Christus Victor. It just means Christ the Victor. I mean, you can tell that, right? Christ the Victor. So this view of the atonement is not so much about sin or satisfying God's wrath. Okay, so uh, it, it diminishes that view. Instead, this view says that the death of Jesus on the cross was more about his triumph over death and sin and hell and all the rest. And again, you look at that and you say, well, that's, isn't that right? And we would say, yeah, that's, that's part of what the atonement is about. But it is not the entire story. This view says that's the main thing. The main thing isn't about Jesus dying for sin or taking God's wrath for us or suffering for other people. It's more about him showing his strength and his power and his perseverance in enduring the suffering and thereby conquering the suffering. It has a little more to do with like Eastern religions and Buddhism than it does biblical Christianity because it's about overcoming you know, death and, and facing your fears and facing death with, with, with grace and dignity. Okay, So this is Christus Victor, not about Jesus paying some penalty for sin, 
but simply about victory over death, okay? Another view is what we just called the example of love. In John 15, 13, you know this verse, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And so this view, uh, again, downplays the payment for sin and downplays any notion of Jesus satisfying the Father's wrath And it says, no, instead, this is more of just an example of how we're to love other people. And what we see here isn't some payment for sin, but it's a lesson in humility and self-sacrifice. And again, we look at that and we say, well, isn't that true? Look at that. There's a Bible quote there from John 15. We know Jesus showed us humility and self-sacrifice. So there are true aspects to this. But this is not all that the atonement is about. Okay, there's a difference there. One of the last uh, different views I want to talk about is the ransom theory. And um, we look at that word and we say, oh, the Bible uses the word ransom. He gave his life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? It's a price that is paid to redeem something back. And, I mean, yeah, that's the atonement. Jesus was paying a price for us to redeem us back to himself. But this particular view said it's the devil that had a claim on humanity. If you have read or watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, anybody watched that movie, read read that book? Um, It presents this view, and, and it's not awful, Again, it's not true, it's not true enough, okay? Uh, the problem with this view, uh, and, and let's just go ahead and put the second one up. Jesus pays the price to Satan to free humanity. In the book and in the movie, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, you know, it's Aslan who, um, in order to rescue Edmund because he has betrayed his friends and given him over to the White Witch, and, and she, she, the White Witch knows the old magic, you know, on the stone tablets that represents the law, and she holds Aslan to the law. So you have this figure, Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus, and you have the white witch that represents Satan. And because Edmund, kind of representing the fall of mankind, has fallen into the temptation of the white witch, um, she holds this dominion over him and his siblings that Aslan must lay down his life for in an agreement with her. You see, he's making a payment to the white witch to redeem Edmund from her captivity. And we look at that, and we th- it is a wonderful story. It's a beautiful movie. I'm not going to take away from that at all. But it does present us with this, what I think is a false view of the atonement. And that Jesus, in this view, is paying the payment to Satan to release humanity from his hold. Okay? And we're going to talk about how all this kind of kind of goes uh, sideways later Um, the ransom view is not wrong the ransom view jesus paying a price to redeem people is right this is just a confusion of the parties to whom is jesus paying the price the bible presents us not with satan but with the father as the one to whom jesus is paying the price jesus is redeeming us back by his blood as a sacrifice made to appease the wrath of God the Father, he is not paying off Satan to release us. So the ransom view, you say a ransom, it was a ransom exchange. 
This is just a confusion of the parties. Uh, C.S. Lewis was one of the, one of the primary uh, proponents of this view, and a lot of people have, have seen some merit in there too. And again, because it sort of softens the blow. It makes Satan the bad guy, right? And that makes sense. <laughs> and it takes God the Father sort of out of the equation. And we don't have to deal with that awkwardness of God the Father punishing Jesus and the whole cosmic child abuse thing. It sort of eases that tension. Jesus is paying off Satan. He redeems humanity, brings us to God. And in, in, while doing so, defeats Satan. Uh, this is just a confusion of those parties, though. So again, all of these views have some truth, but they don't present the whole truth. And by focusing on one aspect over the other aspects and saying this is the emphasis, they all miss the point. So let's go back to the Old Testament and let's ask the question, what did the prophets, what did the Old Testament uh, foretell that the Messiah was going to do on behalf of sinners? So we will begin at the very beginning, back in Genesis. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 3, we'll be in Genesis 3 and then we'll turn over to Genesis 22. So we'll be just in two chapters here, and I think you'll see the, the themes come out. So in Genesis 3, the fall has happened. Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They are naked. They know they're naked now. That shame has settled in. They're running from God. God's come looking for them. In Genesis 3.15, remember the first gospel. I'll put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. Uh, he'll bruise your head, you'll bruise his heel. So we have there in Genesis 3.15 that initial promise of redemption. Through the seed of the woman, we talked about that last week with the virgin birth, the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So we have that initial good news, the first gospel, the promise of redemption, this one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. But look down in chapter 3, verse 21. Genesis 3:21. Man is naked, they're ashamed, and, and this is what transpires then in Genesis 3:21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You see what's happening there in that short little verse right after the fall? God kills an animal to cover the shame and the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Okay, uh, we've had the fall, he's come looking for them, we've seen this promise of redemption, and there from the very beginning, I mean really as soon as he's done talking, as soon as God has, has spoken the curse to Adam and Eve and the most, uh, the most cursed to the serpent, he turns and he shows this beautiful act of redemption and really atonement, although we don't use that word there, covering is atonement. And he kills this animal to cover the shame and the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Turn over to Genesis chapter 22. You know this story. This is not new stuff, but maybe it just does us good to rehearse it sometimes so that we see the errors in some of these other views. In Genesis 22, uh, you know, God has called Abraham to take Isaac to the mountain and to sacrifice him. Remember that, that agonizing line, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him to me. And, and Abraham and us reading, we're kind of left scratching our heads because this is the child of the promise. This is the one they've waited so long for. And now God says, take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me. 
Remember what Abraham says uh, as they're preparing for this journey. Look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. Abraham said to his son Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, whether Abraham knew what he was saying or whether he was just trying to hide what was going to happen from Isaac, still thinking he would have to, to sacrifice him, uh, we don't know what was going on in Abraham's heart and mind. But either way, unknowingly or knowingly, he prophesies what will happen, doesn't he? He says, God will provide himself. Now, that's so interesting how they, he doubles the language. Not just God will provide the lamb, because that would have been sufficient, right? Well, God will provide a lamb, son. No, it's this kind of redundant, God will provide himself a lamb. In other words, what God is asking of me, God is going to provide for me. God has told me to do this, and God will provide for himself this lamb. Now look at Genesis twenty-two thirteen. 13. Um, uh, Abraham has lifted up his hand to kill Isaac, but the angel stops him and says, Do not lay a hand on him. And then in verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead, instead of his son. I love that word. A lamb dies instead of Isaac. Now, we use that word all the time. I want this instead of that. And, and we don't really think about what we're saying, but that word is packed in that case with so much theological weight. Because Abraham has said, God will provide himself a lamb. And at the last minute, Isaac is spared. And lo and behold, there's a lamb, a ram, caught in the thicket by its horns. And we have this statement. That ram was offered instead. Now let's just break that word up, right? In the stead of Isaac. So whereas it should be Isaac on the altar, this lamb now dies in his place, right? God has provided himself the lamb that he required. So right there from the very beginning, Genesis 3 after the fall, Genesis 22, and we could go story after story and show this theme of something dying for sinners. This, this animal dying so that Adam and Eve would be covered. This ram dying instead of Isaac, God providing himself the lamb. That brings us to the sacrificial system. And we're not going to look at that. You can turn to Leviticus chapter 17. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about bodily fluids, Jared, or, uh, yeah, I know, I know. Or any other fun stuff we went through in Leviticus. You can go back and listen, listen to that. We'll, we'll be in Gen uh, Leviticus 17 in a moment. But what we saw foreshadowed in Genesis with uh, the, the animal killed for Adam and Eve, the ram caught in the thicket, what we see foreshadowed there comes to full fruition through Exodus and Leviticus and what we call the institution of the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the priesthood, all that stuff we looked at in Exodus on Sunday mornings and Leviticus last year together here. And, and Leviticus 1 through 7, remember, we have the instructions for various offerings. In fact, we have instructions for five offerings, five sacrificial offerings described there in Leviticus 1 through 7 that cover everything from unintentional sins to intentional sins, to sins against God, sins against neighbors, sins against the tabernacle, sins against other people's property. 
All of that is covered in those five various sacrificial offerings, which, um, aside from the drink offering and the grain offering, all include the death of an animal and the shedding of its blood as an atonement or a covering for the one that's making the offering to correct and cover the sins of the people. And someone would look at that and say, well, <laughs> How does, how does that mechanism work? You know, what, who says that's, that's the transaction? This death in the place of this sinner. Now look at Levit- Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It's not some superstitious spilling of the blood and that this liquid somehow magically washes away sins. But according to the Lord, it is what that blood represents. And that blood represents life. And there's lots of things in your body that are making life happen, but one of those key central things is blood. And without that, you die, right? You die of blood loss. And God says here, the life is in the blood. So in the shedding of the blood, it's not just about the messiness and the ugliness of the blood, though that's part of it. But it's the picture that this thing is losing its life in place of this person who should be losing his life for his sin. Leviticus 17, 11, it is the blood of this animal that is shed for the person. I remember back in Spanish class in high school, which is awful. Uh, they don't, I, don't, I don't know why we even have those classes, because they, they teach you vocabulary, and they, you never know how to speak any of it anyway. <laughs> Forgive me for my Spanish. Um, but I remember there's two different words for for in Spanish, right? In English, you just say for this, for that, for whatever. And, and we mean different things by it. But in Spanish, you have uh, two words, right? Am I right? Por and para. Uh, yes, see, thank you. <laughs> and uh, wh- which one is the one that can mean that one in place of? As in, I would die f- poor. And you, and you particularly use that word, not the other word, to say in the place of, as a substitute, instead of. So we say, well, yeah, the blood is shed for the person. Jesus dies for sin all the time. But what we have to understand, we mean by that word for It's not just some ambiguous purpose, but in the place of, in the stead of. And so these animals shedding their blood in the Old Testament sacrificial system are giving their life, shedding their blood, not just to cover, not just to atone for, that's all there, but they are dying for as a substitute in the place of the one doing the offering to cover sins and to show that this thing is dying instead of you because you should be the one dying. All right? Let's move on then to um, just one prophet. We could go to all the prophets and look at all the messianic prophecies about the crucifixion, about the atonement, but I want to stick with one that's very familiar to us, and that is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. 
Look at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through uh, 6. Let's read verses 1 through 6 first. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All right, so this is Isaiah's prophecy of this coming servant of the Lord who will be a suffering servant, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Obviously, we, we understand this prophesying the coming of the Lord Jesus and what he would do for us through the cross and the, the crucifixion. But we have to ask the question, looking at Isaiah, why does this servant suffer? Now look at verse 5, probably the most famous verse here in this section. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised, punished, disciplined for our peace. And he was beaten, wounded, given stripes for our healing. I almost, in, I almost in these blanks here for everyone made it the word our because that's the center of this. As you read through, why does the servant suffer? He suffers for our transgressions. He suffers for our iniquities. He suffers for our peace. He suffers for our healing. He suffers to do away with our transgressions and our sins, and he suffers to bring us healing and peace and life. All we like sheep have gone astray, the Lord says. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that answers the next question. How does this happen? Again, what's, what's the mechanism that makes this transaction make sense? How does this suffering servant lay down his life and bear this punishment for or in the stead of someone else? How does that happen? Look at Isaiah 53, read verse 6 again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And in response to that, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Go down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I mean, it's not for me to interject my thoughts and my feelings and my opinions into what God sovereignly ordains to do. And so for someone to say, I reject this view of the atonement because I just don't, it doesn't sit well with me, you know, is really beside the point. Because as we look there, in just a few words, we see that laid out for us. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt... 
he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, God shall see, and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Number one here, it was God's will to place sin on him. It was God's will to place sin on him. And, and don't think for a second that Jesus was not in on this agreement. And that it, uh, b- before time and eternity, before creation, God the Father and God the Son, under the power and the presence of God the Holy Spirit, had made this agreement called a covenant that the Father would redeem his people and that the son would willingly submit himself to redeem those people. There was no cosmic child abuse on the part of father and son because the son comes willingly. Philippians 2. He came. He laid down his life. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. He obeyed. He submitted of his own accord to the will and the plan of the father. And that covenant that was made from eternity past. So it was God's will to place sin on him, but it was Jesus' will to accept that will of his Father. God then is satisfied by his suffering. That word satisfied is a big deal because it means that there was something lacking, there was a payment that needed to be made, there was anger, there was wrath, there was a debt that needed to be appeased. And for something to satisfy that, that payment had to be met. And Isaiah says, he shall see his suffering and he shall be satisfied. In other words, the payment would be met. The wrath would be appeased. The anger would be done away with by the suffering of the suffering servant. And then in verse 11, we have this wonderful promise of righteousness for those who come to this suffering servant. This is what we've been talking about in Romans, that the gospel is receiving the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that we who are sinners are counted as righteous because of faith in Jesus. And that's preached right there in Isaiah, that because of the suffering of this servant, many will be accounted. That's a technical financial accounting term that those who had no credit to their name, those who had no righteousness to their name, they would be accounted righteousness. Not their righteousness, but the righteousness of someone else. Who? The suffering servant who takes our iniquities and our sins and our transgressions and in exchange gives us his own righteousness. So, from cover to cover of the Old Testament. Before we even get to the New Testament, and we haven't even turned the page into the Gospel of Matthew, we're in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. You can't even get past the first chapter after the fall without seeing this theme. Satisfaction, atonement, covering, wrath, appeasement. And how does it happen? By the death of these animals by the death and the shedding of the blood of this suffering servant. 
All throughout the Old Testament, this is the picture. There's a debt owed, and this one is going to come and pay the price. Uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, um, we just passed the Jewish festival, the Day of Atonement, that is specified there in the Old Covenant, uh, fulfilled, obviously, in the Lord Jesus. But it's, it's worth noting that in the Old Covenant, on the Day of Atonement, the two goats, remember, come, and the priests lay their hands on the one goat and kill it, representing the imputation of the sins of the people on that goat, and he dies, blood spilled in the place of the people. Then they lay their hands on another goat, remember this, and then smack him in the behind, and he runs off into the wilderness, picturing the carrying off of the people's sins. But either way, what happens? They lay the hands on the goat, representing the sins of the people being laid on this other creature. And one dies to show the payment for sin, and one is driven off into the wilderness to show how much God carries our sins away from us. All of it picturing something else dying in the place of sinners. So now let's go to the New Testament. And let's talk about from our Old Testament foundation, what do we see when we come into the New Testament? I love that phrase that Peter uses uh, in Acts chapter 2 when everyone's standing around wondering what's going on on the day of Pentecost. Uh, <laughs> why are all these people speaking in tongues and why are they acting crazy and, and what's going on here, Peter? And, and Peter, quoting from the book of Joel, he says this is the, the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh and he says this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. I feel like every page you turn in the New Testament correlates to something in the Old Testament, and you can say that same phrase, oh, this is that. And when we look at the person and the work of Christ, especially in the atonement, what we see in Genesis, what we see in all the prophets, what we see in all the Old Testament, we say, this is that. What Jesus did for us is what it was all about. In Matthew one twenty one, you don't have to turn there, you know this by heart, I think, uh, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Word save is the word to deliver. He will bear his people out from their sins. Now, you'll call his name Jesus. That means the salvation of the Lord, or the Lord is salvation, or the Lord's salvation, however you want to say it. Either way, that's why the angel says, this is why you call him that, because he will save his people from their sins. Not one chapter into the Gospel of John, you know this, Jesus comes out from the crowd. John is there baptizing people. Now what does he say about Jesus as he sees him coming? Twice he says it. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I think that's interesting. I mean, of course we know Jesus is the Lamb of God. But again, of is just one of those English words we just throw around. you know. But think about what John the Baptist is saying. When Isaac and Abraham are going up to the mountain... And Isaac wondered where the lamb was. Abraham tells him, God will provide himself, his own lamb. Well, we don't have to bring the lamb. This is not about something we bring to God. It's about something God is providing for us. And right there at the beginning of John's gospel, we're told that's what Jesus is. It's not some offering we bring to God. But it's God's offering that God is making to God on behalf of God for God. It is his 
lamb. Not just the lamb from God, though it is that, he is that. Not just the lamb that belongs to God, though he is that, but the lamb sent from God to appease the wrath of God. Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, and it's quoted in Matthew and Mark and also again in 1 Corinthians 11. Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, he says about the cup, take and drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, or this is the new covenant in my blood. Now, immediately we should think of the old covenant. And when Moses stood there with the people in Exodus at the base of Sinai and sprinkled them with the blood, remember? And he said, you are God's people and he is your God. And there was that institution of that covenant between this God and his people. And Jesus says, this is the fulfillment of that. This is a new covenant. And it's not the blood of goats and bulls and rams and doves. Peter says it's the, the blood of a precious lamb without spot or blemish. And Jesus says, this is the new covenant instituted in my blood. So no matter where you turn in the New Testament and through the Gospels, as we think about what Jesus came to do, and as we look at the cross and the shedding of his blood, it all just starts to click with all that stuff we saw in the Old Testament. Not just those prophecies like Isaiah that tell us what's going to happen, but those pictures, all the sacrifices, the altars, all the blood, Abraham and Isaac. I mean, you get a picture after picture after picture after picture points us to this, and it all clicks when we see Jesus, especially as he dies and as he rises again. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be in John 19 and John 20 just for a second here as we look at the the passion of Christ as it is fulfilling those Old Testament pictures. Look at John 19, verses 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now this central aspect of the story of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus is stripped of his clothes. And your minds should immediately go back to the Garden of Eden. And that first thing that Adam and Eve realized we're naked, and there was shame. And what is the first thing that God did in that act of mercy? Kill this animal to cover their shame and their nakedness. And yet here on the cross, the picture is reversed. And the second Adam, the last Adam, standing there in our place, is not covered, but he's stripped. He's not shown mercy but he's shown full divine wrath as that shame and our sin is placed on him. <coughs> Number two, Jesus is beaten. While we're here in John 19, just look back at verse 1. Uh, also in Luke, 20, in Luke 22, 64, uh, that's when he's standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and they begin to um, 
beat him and punch him in the face, and it says they blindfold him, and they're mocking him. They're asking, who hit you? Who hit you? You know, claiming, you know, prophesy, oh Jesus, who hit you? Who struck you? And then in John 19, verse 1, it says, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And you've all heard time and time again the, the misery and the agony of what a Roman flogging was, the scourging. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that any of that's exaggerated. It was awful. It was an awful, gruesome, terrible, bloody form of punishment from which people often died. A lot of blood was spilled. And that was the purpose. It was torturous. It was, it was to inflict pain and shame and misery so that people would not repeat offenses and to be an example to other people. This was no light beating. So on top of being beaten by the Sanhedrin and brutalized by them, he's taken before Pilate who has him flogged and scourged in his bloody, gruesome way. Jesus is beaten. We think back to Isaiah's prophecy, crushed, beaten, wounded, bruised, stripes. Jesus is pierced. In John 19, verse 2, look there, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. It's interesting that the initial piercing that Jesus experiences, beyond the beatings, the initial piercing that he experienced was a crown, a mock crown, to make fun of him, but it was a crown nonetheless. And then he goes on in John uh, 19, verses 32 through 35. Read there with me. After Jesus has died, John 19, 32. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. And then as we look at John 20, uh, verses 25 through 27, we see something after the fact. <coughs> John 20, verse 25, when he appears to Thomas, the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Uh, but Thomas says to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So from his head and the crown of thorns to the, the piercing in his side, and now we have the evidence that he was nailed to the cross, his feet, his hands, and then also uh, pierced in his side by the spear. We see that, don't we? He was pierced. For our transgressions. And Zechariah says they will look on him whom they have pierced. But the real anguish, the real anguish, Matthew 27, verse 46. All this other stuff, and, and, and I love that I love that people spend a lot of time trying to understand the physical reality of the crucifixion. And I think sometimes preachers and churches put a little too much emphasis on that. Like, we don't need a Good Friday sermon that goes through the medical ins and outs of what crucifixion does. I mean, that's important to understand, sure. And all of this stuff points us to this reality. I mean, this is what the prophets said would happen, and this is what we see happen. But all of this outward, physical stuff, as awful as it is, 
as gruesome and horrible and tortuous as it was for Jesus, that was not the real anguish. The real anguish we see in Matthew 27, verse 46, when Jesus cries out, quoting from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the real anguish. There's a lot of, again, mystery here into what exactly is going on in the mind and the psyche of Jesus. Many believe he was already singing through Psalm 22, which begins that way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe he was singing about being able to count his bones and they're casting lots for his clothes and they've gathered around me, they're making faces at me, they're mocking me. And he might have been quoting Psalm 22. There's reason to think that's what he was doing. But as he comes to that, that takes on a new significance, doesn't it? Because in that moment, however this transpires, in the mystery of that relationship between the Father and the Son, God, the Father, is pouring out the full weight of his wrath and anger and condemnation on his Son for my sin and for your sin. Um, if you ever have time, I tried to find a clip of it, but there's not a short version. <laughs> if you ever have time, go uh, just YouTube um, uh, R.C. Sproul Curse. If you just get those, those words out, R.C. Sproul Curse, you'll find this video of, of a, a sermon he preached called The Curse Motif in the Atonement. And he said that, you know, we're all very familiar with the Old Testament blessing. And sometimes on Sunday mornings I use that blessing from Numbers, the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And Sproul says, if you could just take that and reverse it. That's what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. Not the Lord bless you and keep you, but the Lord curse you and abandon you. The Lord turn his face away from you. And show you no mercy. The Lord turn away his presence from you. And Sproul uses some stronger language than that. I'll let him shock you, not me. As to what God was saying to his son on the cross. Not because of his son, but because of our sin. And I, I can't fathom, and I can't begin to understand uh, what that was like in the, in the, between, in the hypostatic union, the 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 human nature and the divine nature experiencing the outpouring of God's wrath in that moment, those moments, those hours. Jesus knew, and that's why he calls out there near the end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we can read all that, if we can read all the Old Testament, we can read the crucifixion narrative, and we can read what's going on, and we can hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't see any other way to view the atonement than a substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus, Paul says, is put forward by God. Romans 3.25, we preached that a couple months ago. It wasn't some other force that put Jesus forward. It, 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 this was God... Again, Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's God who puts him forward, who puts him out there as the sacrifice for our sins. 
And the word Paul uses there in Romans 3.25 is that word propitiation. <coughs> and it's not just a big word that Paul just wants to use to impress people. No, it has significance with the Old Testament. That just as those animals gave their lives and were sacrificed instead of sinners and in the place of sinners as a substitute for them, so Jesus dies not just as an example of love, not just as a martyr, not just in victory over death, but Jesus dies in the stead as a replacement for, as a substitute for sinners. And it is a substitute to appease divine wrath turn over to the book of first peter i'll uh i won't make you turn to the others there in this section but we will look at these ones in first peter i've told you this i told told you this before um so if you remember this don't think i'm just repeating myself to repeat myself if you don't remember this then it's all brand new to you anyway who cares um, uh, Keith and Kristen Getty wrote the song In Christ Alone. We sing it often Sunday mornings. Uh, interesting story transpired between the Gettys who wrote the song and the Presbyterian Church USA, the very liberal, uh, what we call mainline denomination. Not the conservative Presbyterian churches, but the PCUSA, very, very liberal. And in the song, you know, they say, and on that cross as Jesus died... The wrath of God was satisfied. That's the song. Uh, Presbyterian Church wanted to print a new hymnal and put that song in their hymnal. But of course, being a child of theological liberalism, they wanted nothing to do with a God who has wrath that needs to be appeased. I mean, we're beyond that, aren't we? And so they say, hey, Gettys, can we use your song? But instead of all that wrath of God was satisfied, can we say the love of God was magnified? It's a fine lyric. It's just not what they wanted to say. And it's not the fullness of what they wanted to say. And good for them. They told them no. All the royalties they missed out on. They said no. That's not what we wrote. That's not the whole gospel. Forget about it. It's not just that the love of God was magnified. Though it was. It's that his wrath at sinners was satisfied. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse uh, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, quoting Isaiah, you've been healed. He bore our sins in his body. He bore our sins. He took our sins. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I lay my life down for the sheep. There's that word again. Not just because I love them, not just because uh, whatever other reason we could tack on there, but I lay my life down in place of the sheep, in the stead of the sheep. What sheep? Jesus says, the sheep that my Father have given me. And talking about all this on Sunday mornings with the mystery of election and sovereignty and predestination, and Jesus says, it's those sheep my people, the Father has given me, and I lay my life down for them. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, you know this. <coughs> he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that? God made Jesus sin. Not the verb sin, but the noun. He made him sin, the curse for us. There's no other way to see that except God exchanging us for him and exchanging him for us. Giving him our payment and we receive his righteousness. Back in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 again, verse 18. Peter says, Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer, does it? The righteous for the unrighteous. There was an exchange that took place. And so when it comes to the atonement of Jesus Christ, we cannot whittle it down to just an example of love. Or just this or just that. Why can't it be and why should it be all the above? Jesus said in John 12, 31, before he's about to go to the cross, he says, now is the judgment of this world. And now is the ruler of this world cast down. How? Jesus says, I'm about to go to the cross, and that's going to do it. Jesus' death does bring victory over death. In Jesus' death, we see the end of death. So there is Christ the victor there. Jesus does show supreme love for us on the cross. Romans 5, 8, you know that, don't you? God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of the Father, the love of the Son, giving himself for us. There is great love. There is an example of love and humility and self-sacrifice. Absolutely. Jesus does pay a price to redeem us. But he pays it to the Father. He pays it to God, not to Satan. Paul goes on there that says God demonstrates his love for us and while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more will he then save us? Save us from what? He says, how much more will he then save us from the wrath of God? The payment made to God to save us from the wrath of God. Jesus died in our place for our sins. And again, we look at that, I hope you look at that, and you say, absolutely, that's what I believe. That's what we believe. That's what we preach. That's what we teach. That's what we say the gospel is. That's what the Bible says the gospel is. And while there might be aspects of all those other views that are true in what Jesus did on the cross, it must center on that simple statement. Jesus died in our place for our sins. If we take that away, listen, that doesn't just make us another denomination. And if we take that away, it doesn't just make us some other kind of church or whatever. It, it makes us a false church. If we lose that, we've lost the gospel. Because if we lose that, we fail on one hand to see the ugliness of sin. I mean, that's what that death shows us, isn't it? All the mess leading up to crucifixion, 
all the beatings, all the, the crown of thorns, the mockery, the trials, the carrying the cross, the nailing, the piercing. I mean, it shows us very visually the ugliness of sin, as did the centuries of bloody sacrifices before that. And if we take away all of that, we lose the ugliness of sin, which is, is one of the things that theological liberalism tries to do. We're not that bad after all, they say. So why talk about the ugliness of sin? Well, if we don't understand the ugliness of sin, hear this, we also fail to see the beauty of grace. If the news is not really, 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 really bad to begin with, then the gospel cannot be good news. Why do we need good news if there's no bad news? And in the atonement of Jesus Christ, we see both laid flat before us. And one of those hymns we sing often, Here is love, vast as the ocean. I think it's the last part of the second verse that says, um, where God's love and perfect justice, where God's grace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. At the cross, God's justice and God's wrath and the ugliness of our sin meets face to face with God's love and God's mercy and the beauty of grace for sinners. And if you lose one or the other, you've lost the gospel. So we hold both up and we say like uh, John Newton did, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the covering of the blood of Jesus. We thank you for this beautiful gift that we call the atonement of Christ. That in our sin and our shame and our nakedness, you have provided an exchange. That you have taken our sin and our shame and the ugliness of our rebellion against you. And in our stead, you have given your son Jesus so that we might have righteousness and life and be declared holy in your sight forever. God, thank you for this beautiful picture. As ugly and awful and gruesome as it is on one hand, on the other hand, it's beautiful and glorious. Help us to leave tonight with that etched into our mind. Help us to remember the suffering servant who gave himself for us. And help us to always give you glory and honor and praise for this wonderful good news of the gospel. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time.